everybody, and welcome back to After the Sermon Ends. After the Sermon Ends, the conversations can begin. I am not your regular host, Josh X, Richards at gmail.com. Instead, uh, I'm Matthew Miner, and joining me is um, one of our, is our pastor, Marcus Donaldson. Hello. Um, Josh is in Guatemala, and so he asked me to lead this, but, uh, you know, I completely neglected to get any guest, so it's just me and Marcus today. <laughs> Who gave, um, like, when did we start giving directors of student ministries vacations? <laughs> I don't think he's on a vacation. He's definitely not. <laughs> he's on a mission trip there. Yeah. In fact, last Monday we prayed over Josh and told him to go be a beacon for God for us. That's so. right. Um, as we should any brother or sister in Christ that leads a, leads a mission. And this is his first time being the true leader of a mission. Yes. So, so I'm hoping he's doing quite well. I'm sure he is. Yeah. He said it was going well. I was texting him last night. Oh, that's great. Okay, Marcus. Well, uh, yesterday or Sunday, you went over Romans 9, 1 through 5. If you want to give us a sermon recap. Yeah, so we... <clears throat> Last week we ended Romans chapter eight, which ended on a on a high note. Um, Romans eight thirty eight and thirty nine, you know, like it's on it's relatively unmatched in scripture as far as like ending in such a a note of celebration and praise uh, and joy. And here in Romans nine, Paul begins like you, you figure he'd kind of take that momentum from chapter 8 and then go into chapter 9, but it's almost, um, I asked if if anybody had been uh, caught in a gully washer, like ever in their life. <laughs> and so we defined it, looked at the difference, but you know, a, a gully washer, it's a extremely heavy rainfall uh, that usually lasts in a short duration. So, you know, you imagine you're like outside, it's a beautiful day, sun shining, birds singing, refreshing breeze then all of a sudden, the wind is bending the trees, the uh, clouds are blocking the sun, and then there's like smart car-sized raindrops just falling <laughs> everywhere, and you can't <laughs> see, you know, past a few feet in front of you. Um, and that's sort of the shift from Romans 8 to Romans 9. So we covered the the first five verses in Romans 9, and, and in the Greek, it's two sentences— um, and then the first, Paul affirms the truth of what he's writing in the depths of his pain. And then in the second sentence, Paul provides the reason for his distress, his grief, his sadness, um, and unceasing anguish. So, um, and, and it really centers around Israel's rejection of her Messiah. Um, and the reason, I think, that he, he begins with uh, verifying his genuineness and his truthfulness and his sincerity is because there were a lot of opponents of the Apostle Paul and his preaching and teaching, uh, specifically those Jewish ones who believed that, that Paul lost any natural love or affection for his Jewish brethren. Uh, they thought that his preaching and teaching uh, was against the law of Moses, which we've covered uh, throughout our study, uh, that he was not antinomian, he was not against the law. He recognized its value, its importance. He revered the law, but he also realized that it was fulfilled in Christ. Um, and then also that that by the law, no one would be forgiven of their sin. So uh, he recognized that 
his Jewish brethren, uh, as important as the law was in redemptive history and as important as it was to him and his uh, fellow Jews, he recognized that uh, eternally it, it could not restore or redeem or pardon them uh, through obedience or works of the law. Yeah. Um, so to start breaking this down, looking at verse 1 to just follow up with what you just said, mm-hmm. um, it is one of those, it's a verse where you can tell how like convic- convincing Paul wants to be in it. Yeah. Because not only does he say, I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying. Then he follows it up that my conscience bear uh, also bear be bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Yep. So he's basically without swearing on the Holy Spirit, he's saying the Holy Spirit will confirm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He um he wants him to be convinced that that he's not making this up. He's not he's not saying what he's about to say uh, just for expediency or to just make them feel good about themselves or to um, make them feel better about him he's saying this from uh, the the depths and and the the reality of what his heart and mind think and believe um so yeah he calls on three witnesses there christ his conscience and the holy spirit uh so we looked at at those three witnesses and what you see is that in that first witness christ the lord uh, this isn't new for the Apostle Paul. He did it earlier in Romans, Romans 1, 9. Um, and then it's really, it's because everything for Paul, it flowed from, uh, it, well, it was the foundation for and flowed from his union with Christ. Every attitude, action, behavior, every thought, word, and deed, it flowed from um, or was built on his uh, union with Christ. So Christ is that first witness. His conscience is the second uh, so we talked a little bit about conscience, and we saw that yeah, Paul's conscience and, and no one's conscience is inherently reliable. Uh, it, just like every other aspect of fallen mankind's nature, um, it's tainted and corrupted by sin. Even a believer's conscience can be uh, seared uh, or uh, insensitive due to uh, hardening and and everything else. So our conscience, our consciences aren't inherently reliable. But through consistently fellowshipping with God through His Word and prayer, through fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and through consistent obedience to God's Word, our consciences become more and more reliable. Um, that third witness, the Holy Spirit, it's, you know, the Holy Spirit, uh, His perfect prompting that will either condemn or commend what we're doing or planning to do, right? So, uh, one of the things that I, that I mentioned in the sermon was that I pray that we learn to discern a, a conscience, when our conscience is activated by uh, by culture and energized by our flesh versus uh, our conscience being activated by God's Word and energized by His Spirit. <coughs> because I think it's an important distinction uh, to notice 
However, I think it's one of those that we fail to often slow down enough to recognize. You know, we're at such a a fast-paced lifestyle, a fast-paced ministry uh, that I think a a lot of times we don't don't slow down to recognize who's leading these uh, actions, attitudes, behaviors, thoughts, words, deeds. Um, And it's something that we need to learn to distinguish, and it's something that Paul, uh, over the course of his ministry, learned to distinguish, which is why... He called on the on these three witnesses here um, to verify the truth that he's about to explain. Yeah, and another biblical example we can look at about like how a conscience can't always be trusted. We can look at King David. Mm-hmm. King David lusts after Bathsheba, um, takes takes her, uh, beds her, gets her pregnant, and then he immediately is like, "Oh well, I need to get her her husband." sleep with her to convince everyone that, oh, it's his child. Right. When that fails, what does he resort to? Sending him to the front lines, telling everyone else, yep. take a lot of steps back. Yep. And then like it, t- it takes the prophet Nathaniel, showing him an example of a shepherd boy yep. and his one sheep to get him to fully see how his conscience had hardened. And so it is one of those that this, David called... The, a man after God's own heart and his own conscience was not even yeah. his guide. Yeah. Dang, Jiminy Cricket <laughs> for that bad <laughs> advice. Yeah. Uh, people probably would think it would be a lot easier if the Holy Spirit was like the Jiminy Cricket yeah. on your shoulder. Yeah. Um, so going into um, verse 2 and 3, that I have great sorrow and continuous grief in my heart, for I could, I could wish that I myself were accused from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So the word accused in verse 3. Accursed. Accursed. is, a, is a, I'm reading out of the NKJV. Here it says accused? No, it says accursed. My, my brain's just, <laughs> My dyslexia is getting the better of me. You're good. I was like, whoa. No, no, That's no, interesting. I, yes, it says accursed, which in the Greek is anathema, mm-hmm. um, which I love like the direct translation of that word, which is like completely separate. Yep. Which is just so like, people can say that, but truly with the way that Paul was phrasing this, it's like Paul was serious. Yeah. He's like, I will, I will go to hell forever in exchange for my brother and being saved. Yep. And he prefaces it with, uh, I could wish. Right. So we know, we know here that that's an indicator that he's speaking emotionally, not theologically. Right. He's, He's, He's speaking from his heart, right? As it says. Right, like this is how this is the depth of his grief and anguish. This is the how burdened he is for his fellow Jews who yep. rejected her Messiah. That he would like after describing just the the beauty of salvation, the beauty of redemption and sanctification, and the uh, Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the believer. In ending the way that he did in chapter 8, he, he's saying that he's willing to forfeit all of that um, for the sake of his brethren, if it meant that they'd be saved. Now, we know that, that only one man's death is sufficient for anyone to be saved, and that's the God-man Christ Jesus. Um, so Paul, I mean, he recognizes that. But yeah, to your point, it's coming from his heart, not yeah. from his, you know, like theology. So he's not making a, a point that that somebody can lay down their life and uh or or forsake their salvation yeah. and and trade it with another, you know. Yeah. 
But the thing that I think about is like how <coughs> heartbroken Paul is over this and how unheartbroken we are in modern day. Yeah. Like think about if we were as heartbroken about the modern church and how separated we truly are. Because even there, even then, Paul, like there's not a lot of separation between the Jewish and the Christians at this point. Yeah. And even, but we look today and we're so separated, but no one is heartbroken about that. Yeah. We fight wars, battles, everything, both theological. We, we split a church over whether or not you, you uh, celebrate the Sabbath on a Saturday or a Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we just, it's one of those that uh, it makes me reflect on whether or not I should be more heartbroken and wish that the church would be more as one yeah, I think we should, and we should um, we should have that same burden and concern for the lost as well. Yeah, because um, that's what he that's what he's talking about here. The his concern for those those Jews that had not received her Messiah had rejected uh, her Messiah. So yeah, it, it we lack that concern, and I think it has a lot to do with pace. I think it has a lot to do with. Um, the fact that the the church, by and large, has become a individualistic circus, um, yeah. where we are, you know, we come in and we church shop. What can this church do for me? We come in and uh, we we grade uh, the songs of praise that we sing um, and the the sermons based on how it made me feel. Um, and then we have we have the nerve to say things like "I'm not being fed," yeah, yeah. and it's like, okay, um, but it, it it represents a an individualistic emphasis on churches. Now there are there are great reasons to to look. You know, if you're if you moved into a new area, or if there was you know some reason where you had to leave a, another church. There's good reason to look and, and to investigate, hey, yeah. is this the place that God is calling me? Um, and there are good, you know, you should be concerned with the worship music uh, or I, songs of praises. I prefer that. But anyways, <clears throat> and and the preaching. But I think we've turned it into an individual, an individualistic emphasis where it's about me. Sunday, Wednesday, all throughout the week, it's about what is the church doing for me versus um, what is it doing or what am I doing for the church and um, how are we reaching the lost through that? How are we glorifying God through that? I think there's a lot more to it, but yeah, anyways, we should have that concern, uh, not just for the church, but ultimately for uh, the lost uh, who do not know Christ Jesus, the Lord and saving faith. Yeah. <clears throat> just a slight follow-up on that last topic. The it reminds me of the uh the introduction to David Platt's radical mm. where he goes over that Christ would have been the worst modern preacher. Yeah. Because Christ told the 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 young rich ruler mm-hmm. to sell everything and follow me. Yeah. It's like that that's not how you do that. No. Come on, he's gonna be our biggest supporter, right. he's gonna give us all the money. It's like, but that's not what Christ was looking for. Right. Christ wasn't looking for the money, he was looking for genuine people that wanted to follow him. Yep. <clears throat> and we can see that over and over again throughout the whole New Testament, where Christ is like, you need to give up everything you've done, and you need to come follow me. Yep. It's like he didn't give 
Peter and John the chance to sell his this fish he helped them ca- catch and said they yep. left their nets on the beach and walked with him. Yep. So too many Christians look around at modern churches and go, well, does this fit in with my schedule? Right. Instead of going, does the, uh, do I need to follow what the Lord's schedule Right. Is? Do I need to reprioritize, reorganize, restructure my day, my week, my month, or whatever, in order to uh, serve the Lord faithfully at this local church? Yeah. When I was back in middle school, uh, one of my group leaders asked if we'd read our Bible, and I, I made the mistake of saying it this way, even though it truly was a reflection of my heart. I was like, well, I just don't have any spare time. Yeah. <laughs> he said, maybe instead of looking for spare time, you should reorganize your time yeah. <laughs> and prioritize God. That's a good youth leader, man. <laughs> good for um, him or her. Or Scott, Scott Ball. There you go. Name. Great dude. I think about him quite often when I'm teaching kids, yeah. honestly. Because <laughs> awesome. I'm like, I don't know how he dealt with me and Dawson <laughs> and, <laughs> and the rest of my, uh, my group. That's awesome. Mm. Okay, and then uh, continuing into verse four, um, for our for sorry, who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenant, and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, and then verse five, of whom are the fathers and for whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. So we'll start with verse four. So Paul states exactly who he's talking about, the Israelites, but then he goes into to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenant, and the giving of the law, and the service of the service of God, and the promises. So he's just relisting, is what I'm reading, that he's relisting everything that the Israelites, because this all comes, we are just Gentiles, but these Israelites, this is the, the blessed uh, Fulfillment of all the law. And yeah, nine, he he lists here nine divinely bestowed privileges that Israel um, had uniquely and specifically. Right, these the privileges that he lists were not privileges for every nation and every yeah. people around the world, um, but these nine were either to or through specifically Israel. Uh, yet, despite all these divinely bestowed privileges, uh, many Jews still rejected her Messiah. So I think it's, you know, he's, he's talking about, uh, he, he's verifying the, the truth and integrity and sincerity of what he's about to say. Then he goes and he describes the depth of his pain and anguish and concern. And then he explains, like, even further why. Because you've had all these privileges, yet you still reject your Messiah. So we went one by one, and and I don't know if I framed it up very well on Sunday, but we, like, America is not Israel, yeah. yet we have so many privileges and blessings, divinely bestowed privileges and blessings, not, you know, I'm going to give uh, America, like, God's not saying I'm going to give America, you know, numerous translations, faithful and reliable translations to read the Scripture from. Um, but it is a blessing that, w- apart from God's grace, we wouldn't have. Yet, by and large, many American Christians are biblically illiterate. Um, and and it's, it's something that we cannot say, well, we don't have a faithful translation. You know, it's like, no, again, going back to the time, we need to make time uh, instead of trying to find spare time. Yeah. 
we can look at the examples of our brothers and sisters across the world who face either uh, having to use a foreign translation, which yep. they may not fully understand, yep. or having only partial, only having a partial amount of a accurate translation yeah. at home. Yeah, like there um, reminds me of uh, "In God's Smuggler" by Brother Andrew. They can't get an Albanian Bible. Yeah. Because one didn't exist. The unified Albanian language was so new that no one had translated the Bible and no one knew enough about the Albanian language that wasn't in Albanian. Yeah. So it took many years after the fall of the Soviet Union for them to truly be able to get an accurate native language translation. Yep. And that's also partially why we can look back in history and people were so against doing native language translation because mm-hmm. they were afraid people were going to mistranslate. Right. Even though that's a whole different issue right. in right. itself. <laughs> yeah. But um, I digress. <laughs> yeah, so we looked at <clears throat> at each of these. Um, the special status, uh, Israelites, Israelites had a, a special place in redemptive history. The adoption, Israel, God considered Israel his son, right, his firstborn son. Um, we looked at a few passages where it said that, like Exodus 4.22, um, God commanded Moses to to tell Pharaoh, um, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. The same thing through Hosea. Um, but then we go to God's glory and, you know, the Shekinah glory. I mean, God localized his presence and dwelt among his people. Um, and we, I don't think we can... Like, there's no way to even fathom that. Other yeah. than, like, a man, all right, God localized it. Like, his glory was was there uh, in and amongst his people. And then in the tent of meeting, in the uh, tabernacle, in the temple, um, like, his glory was there. Uh, then the covenants, uh, and when we talk about the covenants I went from Abraham on mm-hmm. um, because you know Jews would trace their lineage to Abraham right he was yeah. their their physical father um, from whom all Jews came and then uh, God's law being the next one and worship worship the sixth privilege worship um, what does it say in, in the New King James does it say the temple service um which one is or it? does it say worship? It says for who are the Israels to whom pertains the the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service the service of God. There we and go. The, promise. the service of God. Yeah. Um some other translations say the temple service, mine says worship in the ESV. Um and it all conveys the same thing. But God he clearly prescribed to Israel. Uh, what was and what was not worship, how to uh, make sacrifices, how to repent, how to glorify him through the ceremonial system. And it's in there that we're like, okay, this is very clear. What is worship and what isn't worship? What's idolatry? What's not idolatry? God has a very clear and prescribed way to be worshiped. And one of the points that I made is that we think that in the New Testament that Jesus or the apostles don't give us any of these same prescriptions. And, and I would, I think you can make the case, sorry, there's no 
there's not necessarily a ceremonial law in the New Testament, yeah. and praise God for that. But at the same time, that does not mean that every song that that says Jesus in it is a worship song. That does not mean that every um, every guy who gets up there on a Sunday, uh, every guy who gets up there on a <laughs> Sunday, um, and gives a TED talk. That's not the same as preaching. Yeah, uh, it's we have diluted i think so much we we've run away with freedom uh, the freedom that that christ gives us um and we've we have a hard time discerning what is and what is not worship the israelites didn't have that privilege the ceremonial law was very clear and i would argue that the that the new testament is equally clear on what is and what isn't acceptable uh, acceptable in biblical worship uh, what is worship that glorifies God and what isn't? Um, the, one of the examples that I, I cited was first in Second Corinthians. They turned uh, the church's life and ministry into a, a circus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the worship worship there was something that we that we spent just a minute or two on. But God's promises is the next one. Um, they Israel had. God's promises. And and I think here Paul doesn't elaborate really on what he's talking about with promises, but I think they're specifically the redemptive ones, uh the ones of the promised Messiah. Um so I think it's Paul's way of saying that that they should have they should recognize Jesus for who he is. And we've talked about this before because of the you know, because of poor interpretation, because of legalism, because of uh Roman Their oppression, own perception. own perception, and Roman oppression. <clears throat> the the picture of the Messiah had shifted away from what we see Jesus as, and it turned into this um, conquering political and religious yeah. leader. Um, and Jesus didn't come that way the first yeah. time, so they missed him. Um, Which is kind of, to me, is kind of funny when I'm in the middle of a Old Testament study. It's like every time Israel is saved. It's not typically a conqueror, no. but instead it is someone who listens to what God wants to do. Yeah. So like, look at Daniel. Yeah, Daniel did not raise up an army no. and come up against the Babylonians, but instead worked with the Babylonians to show the love of God to these people, yeah. ending in him becoming the viceroy to the Persian king. Yeah. And then eventually uh, Nehemiah having the ability to go, hey, I want to go back to Israel, and him going, do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and getting all the ability and the equipment to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's one of those that, in hindsight today, we can say, "Oh, look at these Israelites! How funny they are!" And then we talk about like our perception of worship and yeah. stuff, where we're we're making the same mistakes over again. I agree. I I think um, <laughs> I think about it all the time. Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai, um, receiving the law from God, and um, at the bottom of the mountain the people are worshiping a golden calf. Like we could think that we'd be like, Oh yeah, Moses is going up there. You know, he's going to come back down with, with the law, right? He's meeting with God up there. We're just going to be faithful and obedient and patient while he, uh, while he, you know, gets that done. And it's also looking in the book of Exodus. We can see on multiple occasions where God's like, let me wipe them out. Just make a new nation out of you, out of your descendants. But yeah, I think we'd be, down, just singing and dancing around the golden calf. If uh, if we were left up to 100%. our own devices, so yeah, we I I think the more 
the more I walk with the Lord, then the more I study the Old Testament and, and even the New, you know, and, and I, whenever I'm tempted to like look down on someone or a group of people and like, how could you do that? What are you crazy? Um, I'm reminded like, no, you'd, you'd be even worse, yeah. you know? So the, it, it, sorry, go ahead. It's just people that unhook the old Testament from the new Testament are just asking to repeat. Yeah, you know, for sure. Things that we've already, we should have learned from already. Yes. Yes. Um, the last privilege was the Messiah and, and it's, in Christ, that all of these other blessings find their their meaning, and uh, Christ obviously he was not in a, incidentally or accidentally born a Jew. It had been prophesied that prophesied that he'd be from the house of David, the house of Abraham, um, long before he came. And you know, here he comes through this Abrahamic and Davidic line, um, which is why in the in the two genealogies that we see in Matthew and Luke. Um, both representing, you know, either Jesus's adopted, adoptive father or his natural mother, Mary, yeah. um, both represent those two lines uh, because it had been prophesied. So according to the flesh, Jesus was a Jew, uh, was born a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, and... Grew up in the temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like he was a Jew. And that's something that I think uh, might be shocking to some, but it, it shouldn't be. And that doesn't in any way denigrate his substitutionary atonement. No, actually, yeah. I think it, one, it affirms all the prophecies about him, um, but then secondarily, it, it should really show us, back to your point earlier, uh, that we should be concerned for not just not just the lost, but uh, the Jewish people specifically. Um, because there are some who believe that the Jews will be saved apart from faith. Uh, you know, there's, there's two ways of salvation. All the Gentiles have to come in by way of Jesus, but like through faith. And the Jews, they just get this magic special pass. And I think what we're, what we're confronted with here, especially as it pertains to that belief, is that Paul's concerned because they are accursed and cut off, yeah. because they've rejected their Messiah. We saw with Abraham in Romans 4, the supreme example of justification by faith. It's never been through uh, birth, right, like lineage. It's never been through circumcision. It's never been through um, possessing the law. But justification has always been by faith. So we should be concerned for all lost, lost people, and without exception, that includes uh, the Jews. Well, yeah, because they're not following what Christ said. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father except through me. That's right. So by them saying, oh, <clears throat> by both us Christians and the Jews themselves saying, oh, there's another way, we're just spitting in the face of God when he says, I've given you the way. Right. I've given you the way, the truth, and the life. Right. And it's <clears throat> one of those that, it's like, how blind can we be? Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, you know, if if we weren't, well, if Paul's original readers weren't convinced by his words, right there up at the top of this passage, but if they weren't convinced by that, um, they could be convinced by his pattern of ministry, right? Yeah. He, when, he, when he would uh, go on his missionary journeys, he would begin in the synagogue. He would meet with the Jews first, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, even though 
God used him tremendous, tremendously to bring many Gentiles to saving faith. Um, he still started with, uh, started in the synagogues with the Jews. Um, so if we're like, ah, whatever, Paul, like you don't really care, which may be uh, how some of his readers may have responded, uh, we could look at his pattern of ministry and say, okay, I see the evidence of this concern. So, we, at the same time, I think we can look in Acts and see Paul's heart is there when he confronts like Peter. Yeah. Because pre- Peter's uh, doing double talk. Yeah. <clears throat> and Paul, instead of just sitting there like probably most of us would and just yeah. going, oh, that, that's terrible. I, he shouldn't be doing that. Instead, Paul's like, I'm calling you out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, why are you acting like this hypocrite? Yep. You you act like a Jew when the Jews are here, but you yeah. act like a Gentile when they're not. <laughs> he said, I, I confronted Peter to his face. <laughs> Yeah. Walked right up to him at the lunch table and said, oh, eating kosher today, huh? At the same time, if we look at the start of uh, Paul's Paul's start with his persecution, he was just as passionate about that. Yeah. If I, I truly believe, though, that he became more passionate, even if that is ever possible, in his uh, continuing to uh, uh, do missionary work, both with the Jew and the Gentiles. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. It's like he was willing to hold the coats of the men while they murdered Stephen, the martyr, and then gets blinded on the road to Damascus, and then somehow it becomes even more, like, bought in. Yeah, yeah. any any setback, persecution, any obstacle, it it appears like in Paul's uh, ministry that it just added fuel to the fire. Yeah. Right, his concern grew, his zeal grew, his passion grew— and it and it was never I can't think of an instance where you see his personal uh like despair out of out of an individual concern, out of a concern for his life and his health and his safety. Um, but it was always like outward focused. And I think that that's something that can only be produced through one truly understanding salvation um yeah. and truly pondering the consequences of rejecting Jesus's uh, death, burial, and resurrection, uh, being apart from Christ, accursed and cut off, like understanding the depths of, or the depths and the seriousness of the the consequences of that. Yeah. Um, and then really, on the on the other side of that, it is really pondering, understanding, and considering the glory of salvation, how just absolutely marvelous it is, um, and how life changing it is. And so this whole uh, six-verse structure, five-verse structure that we've gone through today shouldn't surprise us, because what Paul concluded the last chapter in this state of such glory, it's like there is nothing that separates us, which led him to think about the antithesis, which he's thinking about how many people are damning themselves because they are not following Christ who's been presented to them. Yeah. And so it is one of those things where we need to have hearts like Paul yeah. in this and truly care for our brothers and sisters, of both the Jew and the Gentile. Yeah, our family members, our coworkers, yeah. our neighbors, <coughs> a, a genuine concern um, for them to come to, to saving faith in Christ. And all we can do is be faithful to share um, and trust that, that God is, you know, he's going to do the work. But I, I think we... We allow our our burden to shut our mouths 
are concerned to shut our mouths and really grow into uh, apathy rather than yeah. deep and genuine concern. Instead of living like uh, to live as Christ, to die as right. gain, instead we are constantly <laughs> retreating back into our own selves. Yeah. So that we were like, oh, this is too difficult, yeah. even though the Lord says that I will never leave nor forsake you. Instead, we act as if he leaves us every day. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay, Marcus, uh, anything you want to talk about on verse <coughs> 5? Um, of whom are the fathers and for whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Actually, we already touched on that. Eternally mm-hmm. blessed God. Amen. <coughs> okay, anything else you want to cover? It spe- that, that last part right there. It speaks to Christ's uh, deity, reminding yeah. that he's fully God, fully man. He didn't forsake his deity um, when he came down to earth. He was fully God, fully man. Um, yeah, so. what, whenever I think about that, I always think of his temptation in the desert. Yeah. And it's like, we, we think temptation <laughs> is difficult. And then look at the man who is both fully man and fully God, who yeah. could literally summon our, our, our angel armies down, could turn rocks into bread if he really wanted to. Yep. Instead, choosing to continue in suffering. Yep. Because he knew that that was his, his, that was his path. Right. He trusted that the Father knew <coughs> what it was to happen. Right. And even in the final moments of his life, thinking in the Garden of the Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way that is not this, let it be. But if not, let your will be done. Yep. It's like, we need to adopt that stance and that prayer. I agree. It's like, Lord... If we can do it in a different way, please. Yeah. But if not, may your will be done. That's right. Well, thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us today. Um, you can join us every Wednesday at uh, 6 o'clock for uh, dinner, and this Wednesday especially because we'll be celebrating the eighth year of City Church. Yay. As well, if you have any questions, feel free to email joshxrichards at gmail.com. Um, and Josh should be returning next week, but uh, I will be hosting again on the 19th. So thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you later.